Okay, welcome to No Excuses Real Inspiration, hosted by Scott Marshall. So today we have Vic on, all the way from USA. So welcome Vic, thank you for giving some of your time. What time is it over there? Uh, it's about one o'clock in the afternoon. All right, okay. So we are 6pm here. So for the viewers, just a wee brief intro of who you are and what you're currently doing. Well, first of all, Scott, I'd like to thank you for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired uh, New York City police detective. I worked with the New York City Police Department for 20 years uh, in a variety of units. I worked in plain clothes mostly. I worked in narcotics. My last 10 years, I was a detective in the auto crime division where we worked on things like the mafia, chop shops, exporting of stolen vehicles out of the country, um, identity theft, changing of vehicle identification numbers for resale. After I retired from the New York City Police Department after 20 years, I got into writing. I've written a series of, I've written six books, four of which are my experiences and the creative criminals and the wild and unbelievable stories that happened during my 20 year career with the New York City Police Department. Wow, okay. Right, so let's go way back to the beginning. What made you become a police officer? Uh, probably about, I was probably about the age of five or six. My mother used to take my brother and I to the movie theater, which was around the corner from the police station. So when she would take us to the movie theater, we would stop and look at the police cars. And this is in the early 1970s. So I have my face pressed up against the glass and I'd look at the nightsticks and the hats and the bullets. And I was like, wow, I, I want to do this. This, this, these guys seem like, you know, they know where it's at. This seems like it's yeah. going to be a lot of fun. By the age of 10, my friends and I used to go into the local post office and steal wanted posters. So the FBI would have like wanted posters on the wall at the post office. They probably still do. And we would like steal these wanted posters. Of, you know, we lived in the, in, in the Bronx in New York City and we're running around with these stolen wanted posters looking for guys that are wanted in California. It was just like little boys, you know what I mean? Running around, like going up to people that, in the deli with a piece of paper. Like, you think this is the guy, you know? So by, um, I knew what I wanted to do at an early age. My parents wanted me to go to college. I would have none of it. Um, when I was 20 years old, I took the police exam. I passed and I was in the police academy by the age of 21. I was, I was on my way. Okay. And then, so <clears throat> talk to me about being in the police, you know, your, your first experience. Well, it's funny. Um, a lot's changed because you got to remember, I started 35 years ago. Um, when I started at 21 years old, the police academy was six months and the police academy back then, it probably still is, was very disingenuous because the instructors were guys that were only a couple of years older than me or hadn't been in the street very long. And it's, it's difficult to listen to somebody telling you, you know, training you about all this stuff. And it's like, well, how long were they in the street? Like how, they never put this to practicality and they're preaching yeah. this bullshit. So I kind of was like, what's going on? And all they told us was when you get out in the street, don't listen to those old timers. Well, then in the early, in the mid eighties, I get after the police academy, I go to the South Bronx, which is burned out. It's abandoned buildings. And it's just the beginning of the crack epi epidemic in New York city. And the old timers, the first thing they tell us is don't listen to that bullshit you heard in the police academy. <laughs> so it's like, which is it? You know what I mean? So Back then, they would just drop you off on a foot post in the middle of nowhere 
would abandon buildings. You know, the sergeant would say, well, if you need me, call me, but don't really call me. And he would drive off and you're standing there with your thumb up your ass and you're trying to figure out like, okay, how does this work? And there's crack addicts walking by with shit they stole from buildings and stuff. And you're just standing there like, what the fuck is going on here? You, you know what I mean? But after a while, it's like you learn how to swim. It's baptism by fire and you figure it out. You know what I mean? You, you, you learn that you don't have to arrest everybody. You can get information out of people. A lot of times if you treat somebody, even if they're a drug addict or something, if you treat them with respect, you'll get respect back sometimes. So I quickly learned uh, the police science behind it and how to deal with people. I mean, even though I grew up in the Bronx, I didn't grow up in that part of town. And it was a, it was an eye opener. Yeah. Okay. And, <clears throat> you know, for yourself, um, you know, you've written a couple of books now. But back then, during your time within the police, was there anyone who really inspired you within your time as a role model? Oh, there was a couple of mentors in the police department that, that either showed me the ropes or um, uh, to, to give you an example, I went into narcotics. I had about five or six years on the job. And at the time that was in, in, in the throes of the crack epidemic. So we were doing buy and bust operations every day. So it would be you, your sergeant, and maybe 10 guys. You'd go out, you'd lock up 10, 15 people, you know, people selling, selling hand-to-hand to undercovers in the street. You'd lock them up, you'd bring the van into the precinct, you'd strip search them. And, you know, back then, I mean, a lot of these drug, ad, drug dealers were drug addicts and they're coughing on you and you've always got to be afraid when you search them, you don't get stuck with a needle or you don't want to get AIDS or hepatitis. I remember during my time in narcotics, I was always sick. I always had a fucking cold because you're dealing with street people and they're not yeah. the healthiest in the world. Right. So I said, you know what, after a year and a half of this, I said, ah, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And I took a step backward in my career. I went back to it, back to uniform in a precinct and everybody's like, you're out of your fucking mind. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to be a detective in a couple of months. Why would you do that? I go, I'm not happy. I'm just, I'm not happy. So probably about, Two or three years later, my sergeant in narcotics, even though I left, took a liking to me. And I was always a car guy. I was always locking people up for driving stolen cars. And he was a sergeant in the auto crime division. And he reached out to me and he goes, put in your application. I said, well, they're going to kind of look at me funny because I left narcotics. He goes, don't worry about that. So he was a mentor to me. And basically, he put that ladder down for me to get into, into the auto crime division, which got me on my way. Yeah. And then... For yourself, obviously, during your time in the police, was there anyone within your division that had written a book? No, I'm, you know, it's funny. You would think the New York City Police Department at any given time has between 35,000 and 40,000 members. So you would think there'd be cops turning into authors, churning out books, and they don't. I, I don't know why. Cops tend to be more secretive or close to the vest. Um, I've always been told that I know how to tell a story. So I figured I'll take a crack at it. But I, I know of guys that have written books, yeah. but like any of my peers, the guys that I work with, no, it's, it's rare. Yeah. And then, so, so what made you make the decision of putting your experiences on the paper and publishing them? I, I was bored out of my mind. After I retired <laughs> from the police department, I moved down to Florida so, I mean, you guys are in Scotland. So Bronx, New York is 
1500 miles away from where I live in Florida. So totally different world. And uh, I became a police officer in Florida and I absolutely hated it. I went from being a detective in the world's largest police department to chasing coyotes at night and, and, and alligators, which we don't have in the Bronx. We have crime. We don't have tornadoes and alligators and coyotes. We just, you don't see those things. So yeah. I was like, nah, this isn't for me. So I re-retired. I took a crack at a couple of other jobs. I was just bored out of my mind. And my friend said, you should really write books, man. Like you, you got all these crazy stories. Yeah. And I said, nah, the two, when I got into writing, the two things I said, I didn't want to do was I didn't want to get anybody in trouble or embarrassed. And I didn't want to get anybody divorced. I'm not a sour grapes, grapes kind of guy. You know what I mean? Like my books are tell all, but I pull the punches. I don't name people or I change the dates and locations and yeah. ranks, but I, I don't want to embarrass or hurt anyone. Okay. So you mentioned that you've got six books, yeah? And you mentioned that the first four books are based on your own experiences. So what's your other two books about? Um, my latest book is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. There's a drawing of me getting chased out of a confessional by a priest. That really happened. Um, I went to public school the first eight years of, of my learning. And by the time it was time to go to high school, the Bronx was getting rough. And my parents decided, my dad told me, he goes, you're a clown. If we send you to public school, you're going to become a bigger clown. You're going to Catholic high school. I'm like, but we don't even go to mass. I don't care. You're going to Catholic high school. So it was the books about just growing up in the Bronx and me being a little scumbag that realized that the, the route I was going was not going to get me very far in life, that maybe I should calm down and become a police officer. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so talking about your book, if people want to find them, where can they do that? All my books are on Amazon. And they are available in the UK, in the United States. I try to keep the price point low. Um, all my books are about 230 to 240 pages. They make good travel books. They're all $10 and ebook $2.99 download. Okay. And have you thought about making a, an audiobook or would that be too difficult? No, I have. And it's funny because all my friends and people I know or people like people that listen to podcasts like yourself, They'll, they'll, they'll watch my podcast, <clears throat> they'll order my book, and they go, you got to do an audio book, because the way you speak in your accent, and I know when to deliver a punchline, because it, this shit's happened to me, yeah. you know what I mean? So uh, I, I, I'm probably going to do an audio book, I haven't figured out how to do it yet, but when I have the time, I'm going to try to go that route. Yeah, definitely, I would, I would totally agree, because for myself, if I read a book, you know, I'll take half of it in, that's the type of learner that I am. Um, but if I'm if I go out running and if I'm going to the gym, I listen to a podcast, um, right. and you know certain things. So effectively, like if you're speaking just now, you're planting seeds. So if you're planting stories in people's heads, you know that's what we want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, um, it's one thing to pick up a book, but if people hear you and go like, oh, all right, this guy's pretty interesting, or this woman's pretty interesting, yeah. maybe I'll buy their book. And another thing, another selling point that, you know, from my perspective, I would say is, you know, you, you get famous celebrities who write books and then they get somebody to 
do the audiobook for them to do an, a voiceover. But if you write a book and then you read it from yourself, you know, you get more selling points that way. I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right because it's your baby. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's, um, you, t- you take more care of something that's yours that you put the time into. Yeah. And then during your, your time in the force, did you ever incur uh, any severe injuries to yourself? No, I was quite lucky. Um, I've, and I was, I was, uh, I was involved in a lot of shit in my 20 year career. I always made a lot of arrests. I was always getting into car chases. Um, in my book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division, I talk about, I mean, I I've been in well over a hundred car chases and back then we didn't wear seatbelts. Like, I mean, the cars had them, but we didn't wear them because we were young and nothing was going to happen to us. Now I wear my seatbelts all the time. I'm turning <laughs> a little old man. You know what I mean? Now I, I do the speed limit. I mean, I moved down to Florida. I kind of lost my superpowers. If I got pulled over in New York, chances are I'm not going to get a ticket. I get pulled over in Florida. They don't give a shit that I'm a retired cop. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I learned to, I learned to um, assimilate back into civilian life. But no, I, I've never been hurt. I, I, I've actually almost gotten killed a handful of times, but um, I've been very lucky. Okay. So let, let's talk about that then, being you know on the brink of death. Sure. Um, so let's talk about, you know, your, how were you feeling at that moment in time and how, how did you get out of that situation? So one time was the early 90s. I'll never forget. It was a Saturday morning, probably about eight, nine o'clock in the morning. It was a slow day. My partner and I were driving around and we pull over this guy in a Pathfinder. I forget what he did. He went through a light of traffic and fracture. This is 30 years ago. I don't really remember, but we pull him over. And um, I'm talking to him and the guy, you could tell he was out. So it's eight, nine o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And you could tell he was out the night before. Like he was out clubbing. He's wearing slacks and shoes. He's got the button down shirt. He reeks of cologne. He's got one button down too many. Right. right? And he's got a trench coat on and he's kind of got it pulled tight. And uh, I see him moving around with like, and I says, oh, I, I go, it was a taillight. I says, so I says, listen, I said, just step out of the car. Let me show you which taillight it is. Get it fixed. We're not going to give you a ticket. So he gets out of the car and I see him adjust himself again. I'm like, this fucking guy got a gun. So he did it a second or third time. And I reached in and I grabbed, I reached into his coat and I felt the gun. And then he grabs my hands, right? So now I've got the gun, he's got the gun. And now we're, we're rolling around, bouncing off the side of this pathfinder. My partner comes running around the car and I go, gun, gun. And he goes, are you sure? I go, shoot him, shoot this motherfucker. Because <laughs> now you're in the fight. You know, it's one of these things. We've all been, guys, you've all, we've all been in a fight, the schoolyard or adulthood. You know, you're trying to hurt them. They're trying to hurt you. When it's the fight of your life, when there's a gun involved or a knife, and you know, especially in my position, I, I could be standing in the way of this guy going to jail for 30 years for whatever else he's done in his life. You, you're not afraid of getting hurt. You're not afraid of a hernia. You're not afraid. You, every last inch of energy, you can't lose. You can't because if you lose, you're finished. So as I'm fighting with this guy, we're, we're both struggling with the gun. My partner comes around and just pistol whips this guy like, and like if guys in the movies and stuff, when you see somebody get hit in the head with a gun, it opens you up. Like you're cut, like blood is flying. It's like in the movies, like thump and the guy goes down. No, it's like, it's not like Bugs Bunny. Like my partner just kind of give him a smack in the side of the head. 
and he he went down and when when he got hit like his body kind of went limp and the gun popped out in my hand because he he let go yeah and then you know he kind of fell to the floor but i mean that guy was wanted for a whole bunch of shit like home invasions and so he was a real badass but um yeah he probably would have shot me i mean you know he didn't say oh i have a gun here take it I mean, he's yeah. the, the only other reason he's going for that thing is because he's looking to shoot me. Yeah. And then obviously you mentioned <clears throat> you you worked in narcotics as well. Yeah. So what was your biggest seize that you've ever been involved in? I well, Okay. My, the two biggest seize, well, in the, the NYPD, if you make an arrest with kilos, we call it the kilo fairy. Yeah. Like, you know, like you got the tooth fairy. All right. So in the NYPD, we call it the kilo fairy. I've met the kilo fairy twice and it had nothing to do with working in narcotics. The first time was in the early 90s. I was a police officer, probably about three, four years. And uh, we saw a gypsy cab, which is um, it's not a proper cab. It's like an unlicensed bogus yeah. cab that drives around the train stations. It picks people up for a couple of bucks. They're a pain in the ass because they usually don't have insurance. The drivers usually don't have licenses. So we saw a gypsy cab drove, drove by and there were three guys in the back seat and one of the guys was hanging over the front seat and we had a pattern of cab robberies. So I figured, okay, three young guys in the back of a cab, one's leaning over with his face to the cab driver. We make a U-turn, we start following him. The next thing you know, now the cab starts blowing through red lights. So like, okay, we get them stuck in traffic. My partner and I jump out. We run up on the sides of the back seat of the cab and there's three Spanish guys with a brown shopping bag and they're passing the bag around like a hot potato. I'm like, what the, fuck? the bag rips open and there's four kilos in there. So we open up the doors. We pull the three hombres out. We handcuff them, right? I walk into the station house and I'm like, like I won the Stanley Cup. I'm walking around with four kilos of coke. I mean, I only had like three, four years. I'm like, guys are coming by taking pictures. Where did you get this and everything? But there's a funnier part of that story. So later that night, when I went down to the court in, in New York, when you make an arrest, you've got to see a district attorney or prosecutor that night to file charges. All right. Okay. So the, the, the Bronx courthouse is in a really shitty neighborhood. It's like terrible. And especially at night, like there's no places to eat, but they had just opened up across the street, a food court. So it's like, oh, great. I got this great arrest. I'm going to go get something decent to eat. I go into this food court. I get spaghetti and meatballs. I'm sitting there eating and my stomach goes. I'm like, oh, my stomach. I, I got to use the bathroom. Now, the bathroom in the courthouse was a fucking dungeon. I'm not going to use that one. They just opened up this food court. I'm saying to myself, this bathroom's going to be the greatest thing in the world. It's going to be clean and no one's going to be in there, right? So I'm in full uniform. I go into the bathroom. No one's been in, no one's in the bathroom. The thing is spotless clean. I go into the store. I take off my gun belt and I hang it on the hook on the door. Right. I drop my pants. I'm getting ready for liftoff. And the next thing I know, I hear the front bathroom door of the, of the of the restroom kick open. And I hear like four or five teenagers come running into the men's room. And I'm like, oh, shit. And they're like roughhousing and knocking into each other. They're hitting the hand dryers. They turn it on the sinks. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a cop. I'm in uniform, but I got my pants down to the ground. I'm fucking vulnerable. Right. So I said, you know what? I got to finish up and get out of here. All of a sudden, it gets quiet, and I'm going, did they leave? Like, what, what happened? It, it was like a storm, and now all of a sudden, it's quiet, right? I'm sitting on the bowl. I look up. One of the teenagers went into the next stall next to me, climbed up on the toilet, and was reaching over the stall trying to get my gun belt. 
So I jump up with my left hand trying to pull my pants up. And with my right hand, I grab him around the neck and I pull him over the stall. So now when I pull him over the stall, he grabs onto my gun belt. So I'm like, oh shit. So I let go of my pants now, right? Now my pants are down to my ankles and I'm punching him. With, I'm a righty, but I'm punching him with my left, right? <laughs> His friends run into the next stall and they start pulling him. So now it's fucking tug of war. But you know, those aluminum partitions, they're not built to hold a 120 pound kid. The whole wall collapses into the next stall, right? He lets go of the gun belt. I put on my gun belt. I put on my pants. I run out into the food court and they're gone. They're gone. And in my book, I said, well, what was I supposed to do at this point? Get on the radio and call the police on myself? <laughs> if the cops that would have responded would have seen me in uniform, me telling them that four kids almost got my gun in the toilet, I would have been the laughing stock of the New York City Police Department. So I learned very early in life, sometimes keep your mouth shut. And that story, I never told that story before I decided to write NYPD law and disorder. So that's in a chapter entitled Embarrassing Moments. Yeah. No, fantastic. Okay. And then out of your, you know, you've obviously you have loads of stories from your years of experience. But if you could pick one moment that stood out from your time and the service, what would it be? Being a police officer or working for the New York City Police Department is like having a ticket to the circus and you sit in the front row and there's acts, just there's a ringmaster, there's elephants, there's a guy shooting out of a cannon, there's a woman eating fire. There's so much going on. I like, my friends ask me, are you gonna run out of stories? I go, I don't think so. Because sometimes my friends call me up and go, remember this guy and blah, blah, blah. Things that stand out, I mean, that obviously standing out, almost losing my gun in a toilet. Um, my friend almost got thrown in an incinerator. Uh, I was down at ground zero during 9-11. I was there walking around by 1.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I, I would probably say, if you want to say something that I'll never forget, was probably 9-11. Yeah. Okay. And then for yourself, obviously you've worked against a, a lot of high profile people. So how was it um, to, you know, be working against the likes of the mafia? Yeah, we, um, my, so my office was in the Bronx, like the auto crime division was 120 detectives that covered auto theft in the five boroughs of New York. New York city's got 9 million people. And just to give, put it into perspective in the early nineties, the New York City area averaged 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. Wow. So we, we, we had a lot of work to do. And the mafia, they owned a lot of the, um, the junkyards, body shops, chop shops, where the cars went in and never came out. The, the parts were stripped and sold for resale. Um, we did a lot of, our Brooklyn and Queens office did a lot of cases on those guys. I mean, you had to be respectful for them, with them. You never told them anything about yourself. You never told them where you lived. You never, you know, you'd arrest them. You were friendly with them, but you didn't buddy up with them. You didn't tell yeah. them anything about yourself. They didn't need to know. You know what I mean? You wouldn't take a call from your wife or your girlfriend in front of them because they'd use it. So, I mean, the, the, the mafia in New York City, for the most part, most of them knew the rules. And if you didn't, if you didn't play out of bounds with them, they wouldn't play out of bounds with you. But there were several 
There were just six sadistic individuals that if they got the opportunity, they take it to, yeah. to take you out or hurt you. Yeah. And then for yourself, were you, were you ever in a situation where you were held hostage or uh, in a vulnerable situation where you, the team couldn't help you? Uh, yeah, a couple of times and not hostage, but, um, one time there was a building in, um, there was a building that they used to sell drugs out of on the upper West side of Manhattan. And it was always a pain in the ass because whenever we would drive up, they had lookouts on either side of the street. So by the time we pulled up, the lookouts would be screaming and whistling. You could never catch them. They'd be into the building and you'd never catch them. So what we did was we did a walk on. Walk on is you don't come roaring up with, with the unmarked cars. You try to get a couple of detectives that really look shitty to kind of meander on over as drug addicts yeah. and watch what's going on. And then when the field team moves in, you can grab people. So I know how I look now I, is not how I look then. Had longer hair, a beard. I, you know, we would take um, the carbon paper and rub it all over ourselves to look dirty, look like we've been sleeping in the street. Um, you go to work, you just, you wake up in the morning, you wouldn't touch your hair. You wouldn't wash it. You would just come out with a bedhead. And, um, that's what we did. And, uh, we did a walk on and we got within probably about 15 feet of these guys. And then they realized these guys are cops. They ran into the building. So me and another detective tackled this guy and he had just gotten out of jail. Like he had just done four or five years in jail. And I mean, this guy was fucking jacked. I mean, he was a beast. And the two of us were like, he was throwing us around this. I mean, I'm a, I was a lot heavier then. I was probably 180 pounds. The guy I was working was probably 180 pounds. He was throwing us around like toys. And I remember like he had his arms, he, he had his arms around my waist and he was trying to figure out where my gun was. And I kept, the one thing I kept was, this, I, I was trying to break his fingers, man. Like I was like, <laughs> I was doing it. I probably did. I probably broke a couple of fingers. Like I was at that point, I'm like, if I break his fingers, he's not going to be able to get a hold of my gun. And we were screaming into the radio and, and it took, I mean, probably 30 seconds to a minute, which when you're in the fight of your life is a long time. So I had a couple of those times where, you know, you're fighting with somebody and you're waiting for the cavalry to arrive. And it's like, you can't wait to hear those sirens in the background. You know, it's just like, okay, if I could just keep this guy at bay for another couple of seconds, I'll be all right. Yeah. <clears throat> and then obviously you've written six books so far. Have you got any more books in the pipeline? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't have a title for it, but right now I'm writing another NYPD theme book with, with stories from my career. Okay. And if you were to look for, inspiration would you have a tv show or a movie that you would look at yeah um there's there's two really good movies um you probably can get them in the uk um the two movies that made me want to become a police officer was um the french connection yes that's about the heroin trade in new york city and how the new york city police department a couple of detectives smashed that case I actually met one of those detectives later in, later in my career. The other movie is called The Seven Ups. It's another uh, NYPD-based movie that was filmed in the New York City area, and it's probably got one of the best car chases of all time. So, you know, I, I'm a product of my environment. I'm a city kid. I was born and raised in the Bronx. And, you know, I, used to, I grew up watching these movies, and I, I got to live my dream. Okay. And if I, I put it on the shoe on the other foot, 
if I was to ask you your best ever gangster movie, what would that be? Probably Goodfellas. Yeah, Goodfellas is up there. Yeah, Goodfellas is definitely up there. It's, um, you know, I mean, Martin Scorsese, De Niro, Pesci. I mean, and those and, and the characters they portray in that movie, they really existed. That's before my time. Right. Okay. But those guys, I mean, did you ever watch Goodfellas? Yeah, yeah. But I'm All right. So Goodfellas remember in Goodfellas, the guy with the, with the hair pieces, the guy that sells the hair yes. pieces. I remember those commercials as a little boy. Like that guy, that guy really did. Like the guy they, stabbed, yeah. the guy they stabbed to death in the car. He was on TV all the time, that guy. Yeah. Um, so never in your uh, time in the service, you never came across any of these guys? Well, uh, a lot of the famous guys were off the street. You got to realize, like, I got hired in 87. That was pretty much when I was coming up. Rudy Giuliani was the prosecutor in New York had really taken the wind out of the sails of the mafia. Like the famous ones were either dead or in jail or on their way going to jail. Um, I met a lot of famous people in my NYPD career, but famous criminals. No, I did get to see, I'll tell you a couple of wild stories. So the old lab, like if you had a large narcotic seizure or something, you would bring it directly to the lab the old lab was in the police academy in, in uh, lower Manhattan back then. And um, w- before you got to the lab, the lab was on one side of the building and the ballistics center was in the other where they, you know, fire, you know, test firearms yeah. and stuff. So they had this big display case in glass. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And they had all these guns. And there were two guns there that I, I couldn't believe was sitting there. It was um, the gun that was used to kill John Lennon. Wow was up on the display case and the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, the terrorized yeah. New York city for like two years shooting couples that used to sit in their car. So I was just kind of like, you know, like who, who even knew this was here? You know what I mean? It yeah. was like, it didn't like, and it was like a cheesy display case. It would be like something like your dad would make in a wood shop, but it was like in the lab. And I just thought it was like the wildest thing that that was just sitting up there. Um, I got a couple of funny. Do you know who David Berkowitz was the son of Sam? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've watched a documentary on Netflix. Okay, so I got two funny stories about him. So one is one of my best friends buys a, a buys an apartment in his condominium. So David Berkowitz has already gone to jail. He's already gone to jail, and the address. I'm going to get this wrong. Someone, one of your viewers is going to think that I'm making this up, but they. What happened was after David Berkowitz went to jail for killing all those people, the building became famous. So like tourists used to come by and take photos and steal shit out of the lobby. So like the condo associations that are, fuck this, they, they, they changed the address. It used to be like 25 Pine Street. And they changed it to 14 Pine Street. But anyway, like 10, 15 years later, my friends, my friend buys an apartment in that building. So I used to bust his balls like, do you hear the dog talking to you at night and shit? And he goes, no, you know what torments me? He goes, the fucking idiot mailman. He goes, it always delivers the mail to the wrong address because they changed the address <laughs> to the building. The other son of Sam's story I have is um, my old partner who actually narrates um, a Netflix series. Did you see um, the Times Square Killer on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. I'm That's my sure. old partner that does um, the guy that does the interviews. Um, Detective Malcolm Ryman. He yeah. wasn't. He, he's like the narrator. 
Anyway, my old partner goes to Bronx Homicide and they had to go up to Sullivan County Correctional Center. Some guy that was serving a life sentence for a murder, they were taking him out of jail to bring him back to the Bronx to charge him for another murder. So while they go up to Sullivan County Correctional Facility, the warden of the jail is giving them a tour of this prison. So my old partner goes to the warden, he goes, does the son of Sam live here? He goes, yeah, you wanna see his jail cell? So my old partner's like, yeah, what the fuck, let's go. So he goes, the next thing you know, they, the, the warden leads him and his partner into David Berkowitz, the son of Sam's jail cell. And he goes, he goes, the jail cell was immaculately spotless. He goes, very symmetrical, like there wasn't a thing out of place. He goes, Vic, he had fan mail like this high in his room, like in his cell, like fucking, you know, this is 30 something years later and he's got fan mail, like women oh. writing him letters. They want to fucking marry this, this lunatic. So anyway, he says that, um, while they're in his cell, who comes walking up, but David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. And he's like, uh, he's all nervous. He goes, warden, what's, uh, well, who are these guys? What are they doing in my cell? And he goes, no, relax, David. He goes, these are two detectives from Bronx homicide. They just wanted to see your cell. And David Berkowitz turned to my old partner. He goes, you guys are a little young to be here for whatever I did in the Bronx. That's what been all taken care of. So like, <laughs> yeah, it was fucking wild. He goes, he goes, he was, he goes, he was spooky. Wow. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> and then for yourself, you know, what, what does the future hold for? So obviously you're going to be, you're now retired, you've got amazing stories, you're writing your books, but have you got anything else up and coming? I, you know, when I got into writing these books, I, I, I do not, I'm doing it for the money. I don't necessarily want to be famous. I've gotten better with doing appearances and podcasts because it's the nature of the beast. If, if you want to sell your books, you got to, people want to spend, if you, if you want people to spend their hard on money on you, you got to give them, you got to give them something, you know yeah. what I mean? So that, that's why I do these interviews. I, I, I want to be rich. I don't necessarily want to be famous. I'm perfectly content being a, not an A-lister, not a B-lister. I'll settle for being a C-lister as long, as long as I got my health and a roof over my head and a little money in the bank, I'm fine. I don't really need much in life. Yeah. And then obviously now you've retired, right? But within the force, um, Obviously, you need to keep fit, yes? Oh, yeah. And, and a reasonable level, yeah? So, are you still training every day? Oh, yeah, yeah. I go to the, I'm go to. i in the gym three, four times a week, and I do all my own yard work. And, yeah, I mean, I, I still I still weigh the same weight I was in the police academy. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely I, – I'm definitely into fitness. And then, obviously, being from New York, have you competed in the New York Marathon? No. No, I'm a runner, but there's no way. There's no way I could do that. It's just, it's just too much of a dedication. You know what I mean? It's like I'm 55 years old. I only got so much use in these joints and knees. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I know people do it, but I'm not that guy. Yeah, and when you go to the gym just now, what are you training? Is it full body or specifically yeah, weights or cardio? Yeah, free weights, a lot of treadmill, uh, stepmaster. Um, yeah. Push-ups. When I'm not in the gym, I'll do push-ups. No, good. What about fitness classes? Is that your thing? Or I tried yoga a couple of times, but it's like I, you know, I'm a little young for yoga. 
And, you know, I, I go in there and it's like, there's just sounds emitting from these older people in the front of the yoga class. I'm like, I, you know, I get a headache when I walk out of there. I'm like, yeah. I'm good. Um, another class as well, uh, Pilates. Pilates is good. Um, but there's one here in the UK. I don't know if it's in the US. Um, it's from Les Mills. It's called Body Balance. So it's a mixture. So goes into quarters so 20 minutes of each section so it'd be like 20 minutes of pilates 20 minutes of yoga and then 20 minutes of tai chi i generally just thought the the 20 minutes of tai chi it was just too fast moving for myself <laughs> yeah my, my old partner i used to work with a chinese fella who was six foot five and 350 pounds. And I used to call him Bok Choi, my humble Asian sidekick. And he used to refer to me as Lo Fan, which means evil white ghost. And I think it's in Cantonese. And to get to the courthouse in lower Manhattan, you had to walk through Chinatown. So it was great. This guy spelt multiple dialects of Chinese. So we'd be walking through Chinatown and, they, and you'd have the older Asian people practicing Tai Chi in this park. And, you know, you'd walk by and you'd hear people arguing. So like, for instance, one day we're walking through the park and I hear these two women arguing in Chinese. I go, what are they arguing about? And he goes, oh, she says that her husband is paying too much attention to her. Not good. I said, oh, shit. Then another time I see two men arguing in Chinese and I go, what are they saying? And he goes, he's late for work. Final warning. Right. So I, this is kind of cool. Right. So the third time I asked him, he goes, what the fuck am I your trans? What do you say? What the fuck am I your spy? He goes, if you want to learn Cantonese, he goes, go buy Rosetta Stone. <laughs> nah, fantastic. And just before we round up, Vic, obviously, if people want to find you on social media, where can they do that? Yeah, on social media, I've got a Facebook and Instagram page. It's at Vic. Ferrari, like the car, five zero, and my books just go on Amazon. Go to uh, books and then just type in, you know, under author Vic Ferrari. Nah, fantastic! It's been an honor to have you on my show. That you're a real inspiration. Thanks, I appreciate it. And just before we round up, have you got any questions for myself? Well, before we went on air, I was telling you because I, I picked up immediately that you had a Scottish accent. And I told you. My favorite, one of my favorite movies of all time is Train Spotting and Train Spotting 2. I'm like fascinated with Scotland now and, and <laughs> you know, Edinburgh and, and, and uh, Glasgow. And uh, like I said, as soon as you got on, I go, damn, you sound like Begbie. So, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, it's like, I, I, you know, now I'm like trying to learn everything I can about Scotland. So, no, I, I like what you guys are doing. Nah, good. Um, but no, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you.